You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here from a blog to watch with the Superlative Podcast. I am joined by uh, someone I've known for quite some time, a watch industry veteran and a watchmaker, Mr. Peter Speak. Hey, Peter. Hey there. Nice to meet you again, Ariel. Yes, uh, we have a lot of fun memories going back. And the first times I met you were at the watch shows, the trade fairs, where we would do business by day and pretend like we're having fun at night. Um, <laughs> you, once, you, you once chaperoned me in Las Vegas. I don't yes. know if you remember that. I, of course uh, that I was, do. That was wonderful. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have very fond memories going back to Las Vegas. Yeah. Las Vegas is a place that if you don't take care of yourself, you can get in trouble. And there's not that many places like that in Switzerland, maybe none, right? Like in Switzerland, if you're like, you can't handle yourself, someone will put a blanket over you and be like, would you like to see the exit, sir? <laughs> You know, in Vegas, it's like, if you're going to die, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was, it was funny. Well, the, your, your chaperoning, your care, your attentive nature will live with me forever. I'm, I'm sure that you're a wonderful father. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we're talking about that. My, my son turns uh, three right now. So I, uh, I'm in the part of my, uh, my negotiating stage as a parent where we have to get him <laughs> to do things by negotiating. And it's funny because... Somebody said to me earlier, like, you know what, Ariel, I bet you're good at it because you had to deal with a Swiss and that taught you patience. And I could not disagree. <laughs> and uh, slightly inebriated English watchmakers in nightclubs in Las Vegas at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's good practice. That's all. That's, that is for sure. So you've been living in Switzerland. You're obviously not Swiss yourself. Has Switzerland taught you patience or did you have patience before moving to Switzerland? I think I, to, to be a watchmaker is not a question of actually being patient. When it comes to the culture and the people, everywhere you go, you have to deal with uh, bureaucracy, so, so to speak. So that isn't something which affects me. When it comes to watchmaking as a whole, um, there is this popular, what I would call a misconception, that to be a watchmaker, you have to have patience. Where in reality, to be a watchmaker, you have to, I think you have to love it, uh, like anything. Because if you enjoy what you do, you do it and you don't need to control yourself. You don't need to have the discipline, in a sense, to do it, depending on for how long you have to do it for. So dealing sort of with meticulous, tiny components and complications and mechanisms is something which time for me and for I think an awful lot of watchmakers just flies by because there's a love behind it. There's a passion behind it. It's a very unorthodox, it's an unusual type of business. Um, so if you love it, you don't really need patience. And Let me ask am, you. Oh, good. No, no, no. I was going to say, I don't have patience. I'm incredibly impatient as an individual. <laughs> but as a watchmaker, you're very, very patient. Now, did you grow up in a big city or a small town? I grew up about 16 miles outside of central London in a little town called Epping in the county of Essex. And very briefly, from the age of about nine years old, I would get on the a train. We were at the end of the underground in, in, in Epping. And I would, every weekend with my, my best friend, Simon, we would go into London town 
um, just the two of us. And we would go to museums uh, and we would go to galleries literally from, from, from that age, something which you would never consider a kid doing today. Um, so it was born in a small town, but always very much linked with a big city. And you at some point became a watchmaker and a restorer and a fixer of watches in London, in Piccadilly Square or around that area. How did you end up there? Okay, so Hackney Technical College was where I first studied in 1985 uh, to 87, then Switzerland to do Rostep for the first time. Did that again later, a few years, a few years later. Well, briefly in Oxford, then in London's uh, New Bond Street, I became the Piaget watchmaker. And then to then to Somlo Antiques, where I developed the restoration uh, department. Uh, the reason I jumped around so much, and there was also a stint in Rolex and Omega, was the need to learn. Um, this is actually part of the impatience thing, is that I need to learn. If, if I stop learning, I kind of feel like I stop growing, I get bored, and then I have to move on, which is one of the reasons I do so much. And uh, probably one of the reasons why the Naked Watchmaker, uh, as, a, as a website, as a, a platform of education, actually exists today. So my, kind, my, my, my career path has very much been linked to this desire, this need, this one, to continue to grow, to continue to learn. Um, and it, it, has, it has been an incredible ride. Uh, from working for companies, from developing my own company, my own brand, helping other brands exist, and now to now to developing a, a platform which is completely objective, which actually helps share uh, and educate people in a way which is has never been done before. Uh, nothing like this has ever existed. There are similar parallels by the odd person, but nothing quite like the Naked Watchmaker. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. We're not even there yet. We're still at you at Piccadilly Square. Yeah, yeah. Piccadilly Circus. Piccadilly Circus. Um, Piccadilly Circus, Pic that's right. The, the irony with Piccadilly Circus was that I was actually on my way to New York because I was going to work for a company called, I think they exist today, Mayors, Mayors International. And there was a loophole at the time whereby if you work for Mayors in Liverpool, you could then get a green card and go to America. Oh. Um, and is that where you wanted to go? I always wanted, always wanted to get out of the UK and America or Australia. They were the two places that I had as a kid in my in my head to to, to go to. Why'd you want to get out of the UK? Because um, I knew the UK. I wanted different things. I wanted to see, experience uh, different places, and also as a slight um, as a, a slight. A very it's variation, whatever the word is. Um, my parents were married in Malaysia. My brother, who was 10 years older than me, uh, left home when he was 18, traveled all around the world. So as I was growing up, I, always, I had these photo albums of my parents being married in the mid-50s in Malaysia, in Kuala <laughs> Lumpur. Uh, which is not the same place. It was like a, tro like a tropical wedding? It was incredible. Well, you see, I mean, he was, he was posted. He was a technician in the, uh, in the RAF. Oh, okay, um, that makes sense. And, I was like, well, that's, it's very random to go to Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was before the RAF became the, <clears throat> before they came, became the MAF, the Malaysian Air Force. Um, and you could see him on, well, he, there's pictures of him on like on whirlwind uh, helicopters and with his mates and they're literally living in, um, in, in huts, 
um, grocery funds. Uh, it, it was it was incredible. Um, wow. The the images. It's, it's, it's so romanticized to, to be real, you know, like to actually yeah, have yeah, that be yeah, your yeah. dad's experience. Yeah, totally, totally. So I kind of grew up with all of his stories and all of that side. So I always wanted to travel. And I think I also grew up watching sitcoms and comedies like MASH and Cheers. Uh, and I loved the American culture. I loved the American dryness of, of humor. Um, <laughs> so but, but between my brothers leaving home and my mom and dad's marriage and life in, uh, in, in Asia, um, it was always sort of ingrained, not ingrained into me, but it was part of what I wanted to do was to get out of the country. And honestly, Switzerland was never... Was, was never the thought process behind it. was never the, uh, the targeted uh, country uh, in my mind. So Okay, so hold on, hold on. We haven't talked about watchmaking yet because the, the, the guy today in your shoes that like wants to get out of town, he's not like, and I'm going to go to watchmaking school to enable me to do it. Like, where did you get the idea that, and again, this is in the 80s, so it's like watchmaking was, you know, in a lot of ways on the decline. You talked about yeah. doing it, but... What made Peter think, hey, this is the career for me? I'm not saying it's a, it was a bad idea. It was a good idea, but and you're good at it. But how did that enter your life? Uh, there's a few bits which I've missed out. Well, one of the things was that I left school with like an average education. I had a, a lot of qualifications, but average in everything. Um, and then I was introduced by a careers teacher in a small town called Loughton uh, in Essex to a course called Horology. So... I went along to the course, and one of the things that the uh, Mr. Beanie was the guy's name who actually ran it, and that was actually that was his name, Mr. Beanie. I love um, Mr. Bean. I mean, I know it's slightly who, similar. Who, who, who doesn't? Rowan Atkinson, he, man, so good. He's, he's a god. I mean, he's absolutely fantastic. Anyway, I spoke to the Chris teacher. She came up with this uh, prospectus to the Hackney Technical College in watchmaking, and. Even at that stage, one of the things that I always wanted to do was travel. I kind of knew I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of the, the UK, but not necessarily do the kibbutz and the traveling around the world with a, um, a backpack, but more to, to live and experience the cultures and go to different places. And Mr. Beanie actually, he said that one of the things about watchmaking is that, or being a watch technician, a qualified could do it watch anywhere. repair. Exactly. That was it. And huh. I was an I was a, an, an avid a, an, an avid follower of the BHI magazine uh, because at the back they always had job there was always um, job ad, adverts for jobs so I would always look and I think that's probably where I found the mayor's thing so the mayor's thing with the loophole to get a, a green card I was literally on my way from Southampton where I was working for Omega. I stopped off in London to see a group of friends. And the following day, I was going to go to Liverpool for the interview. And I never made it to Liverpool because I, I had one too many with a, a group of friends who I had come to work with. sound like you. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I do <laughs> pretend to be far more mature these days. Um, pretend is probably the appropriate word. And I didn't get there. But what happened was one of the guys that I was with, who was actually, uh, who is English, but ended up marrying an American girl and now lives in uh, upstate New York, uh, New York in, in Binghamton. Um, he said that there was a, a company in Piccadilly who were looking for somebody to set up a workshop. So I don't know what I was. I was 20 years old, I think, at the time. And Super young. Wow. Really into making business decisions. 
it was uh well it was I, yeah i kind of feel like I, I feel like i was i've kind of i was mature when i was younger and then slowly during my life um i've kind of become more and more infantile um but it's just it's my sort of reverse lifestyle instead of going to liverpool I ended up meeting a guy called George Somlow at Somlow Antiques, and literally on the on in the first meeting, he offered me more cash than I'd ever earned up to that stage. Um, he offered me the, a, a a white sheet in relation to designing and building a workshop, and the kind of pieces that he was buying and selling, and he wanted to have restored and provide a service for his clients, were the most extraordinary. Wait, hold, hold, um, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, so this guy has money. He's in London, and he has the motivation and whatever. N- not saying there's anything wrong with you, but you were 20. Why you exactly? I mean, weren't there other other people out there that could do this that were like, I don't know, 40? I think I asked him that question uh, at a later point because literally in the first week, he gave me the combination for the safe. He gave me the the code for the alarm system. Um, there's like complete trust for somebody that he doesn't know. And it was, I, I kind of took it for granted at the time, but then I looked back on it later and I thought it was bizarre. And we've remained friends ever since. And he just said, I mean, he has, I think one of the elements with George is that he's pretty good at reading people, possibly better than people are at reading themselves. And he trusted me. Um, so he had no idea of my pure, my real uh, capacity or potential as a watchmaker, but he believed that I was the right person for that job. Um, I don't know how long he, he had been looking for a while, and he had already had an operation set up uh, with without by outsourcing the the work to to another workshop. But he wanted to have his own thing, and I came along and I somehow rubbed him up the correct way, um, and he trusted me, and it worked. It, it changed my life because instead of leaving to go to America or anywhere else, I then spent the next six years working uh, for George and developing two workshops, uh, a whole network of suppliers and uh, artisans around me to do all the different kinds of diverse work that we did. And it was incredible. Let's, let's pause right here because, again, there's so much context, which is important here to explain the series of events. Most watchmakers go to watchmaking school, even if it's several years, there's a key element which they don't do, and that is like making something really new and really fixing something like old and having to make parts and things like that. So your education in being a restorer and a fixer and having to be, uh, I guess you could say, resourceful about it was a crucial element to becoming one of the, the sort of very celebrated watchmakers today that have their own names on brands and stuff like that. Because most watchmakers want that, but the standard educational path that watchmakers have today of what little standard education there is does not get you to uh, brand founder status, let's put it that way. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, when you become a watchmaker, you're taught how to repair and to repair watches, to assemble watches, to make uh, components and the theory which is behind it. You're not trained, educated to be a brand, to understand positioning, pricing, coefficients. It's, it's that that's something else altogether. We're talking about a very specialized niche uh, occupation. So 
there is not there isn't there isn't anything out there but then it's incredibly diverse as well uh, as a business at Hackney Technical College we were I don't know how many people there's like a dozen students there and everyone pretty much went on a different direction because you can because the the business the the craft is so diverse so I think with all of the colleges and the educational facilities that are out there, all they can do is they can give you a foundation upon what to, on what to build. And then after that, it's entirely up to you which route you actually take. The, the key, I believe, to kind of the success of Somlos and the work that we did there and in the period of under six years becoming pretty much internationally known and having incredible timepieces sent to us from all over the world was actually an innate belief built of youth and confidence that we could do anything. And as a, a dear friend, uh, Ian Scallon, um, has said on a number of occasions, confidence is like a superpower. If you believe you can, you really can. And that's another cliche. If you believe you can't, you can't. You believe you can, you Just can. look at politics yeah. for proof of that point. I'm not going to, not going there, not for, <laughs> not for, not, not, not for a nanosecond. Um, but it's, it's an incredible thing. It's just like we had, um, we were young. Um, we had very little machinery around us, but we believed we could do anything. And it started off with myself within about a year or 18 months. Uh, I took on my first watchmaker, Stephen Hale. Um, and Stephen then eventually, because the business grew, we had more and more people starting. Stephen ended up taking over when I left in, uh, in 1996. He took over the business and he's continued it uh, ever since. And Stephen was, is just a phenomenal guy. He's a phenomenal watchmaker. And we never thought there was anything that we couldn't do. And subsequently, there wasn't. We did every, we, we made You, you got to give an example. I mean, like, what is it that you shouldn't have attempted that you did? Well, one of the things is that there, there aren't, with all of these early wristwatches and pocket watches, whether it's pre-1950s or going back to the 18th century, you don't have instruction manuals. There, there's no keys to how you take them apart or how you put them together. Um, so you have to use your, And it's dangerous to do so the wrong way, I presume? It, well, it, it can be. I mean, I remember somebody, even at college, they were taking apart uh, a, a Verge pocket watch and they hadn't let down the power on the thing. The balance was actually out of it um, and they had assumed that there was no power left in it, but it was a fusy pocket watch. So there meaning, was still meaning power. Meaning uh, for everyone who doesn't know, the, the spring was still wound. The, part of the spring was still wound. And the person wasn't aware of the power that was still within the... I mean, it was a student. He wasn't aware of the power that was in there. So the teacher caught the student before he was pulled out the pins which held the thing together and, and actually took off the top, uh, the top bridge. If he had done that without letting down the power, the thing would have kind of exploded and pivots would have been broken, teeth may have been damaged. Uh, it would have been like well. one of those Alice in Wonderland things where the, the watch, the pocket watch... <laughs> Exactly. There would be a slow motion scene and you'd have all of these wheels and levers and screws <laughs> flowing around all, all around you. A little orological grenade. Yeah, something akin to that. So there are, you, you never really know. So you, part of it is just like common sense. Part of it is both with myself and Stephen, we were both very, very fast at what we did. 
So we learned an enormous uh, amount. And uh, there was another element to what we did that once you understood the basics behind horology, um, most of it's actually common sense. If your mentality, if the way you think is aligned with with watchmaking, with, with with horology. Yeah, there's certain basic principles that you know conf- that are used to make all these different mechanisms. Which is true up until about the 1960s. After the 1960s, there are that 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 ceases to be entirely true. But when you go back into, and I can talk about that later. But when you look at things which are prior to the 1950s and literally going back to the 19th, 18th, and 17th century, most of that stuff is actually pretty pretty logical. I mean, it is often brilliantly executed, made, finished. And if you look at things which were made like Breguet back in the the beginning of the 19th century, it's awesome. Um, Sorry, a word that I hate, but it's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It really is. It is. It's so impressive. And I mean, there's, uh, there are Breguet, for example, during his lifetime, the the guy who perfected the, the, the tourbillon, patented the the tourbillon the guy who uh, made the subscription watch which was both an, an entrepreneurial uh, stroke of brilliance to increase his own personal market at that moment in time but also had elements inside which simplified the mechanism and he had a, what is called a cylinder escapement it was a friction resting escapement which isn't really important except for the fact that you have a cylinder which is a, less than about a millimeter and a half inside, made from ruby, which is perfectly polished, perfectly cut, um, with the edges all in a particular form. And this was before CNC, before CAD, before electricity. And, and, and it's just mind-boggling. Peter, I know what you're talking about, but so few other people do. So it's like, my job is to slow you down so I can explain to the layperson like what you're talking about. Go for it. Like, okay, so you know, a lot of people, when they see like the pyramids in Egypt, they're like, there's no way people did that. It must have been space aliens. Like people probably made the pyramids, let's be honest. And they had a lot of time and effort to think about how they would do it. And similarly, when you look at some of the watches that Breguet made, um, like you said, in the 18th century, and you examine them today and you're like, wait a minute, they didn't have this machinery and this software. And like, how did they do this math? And like, did this like like who like who was able to put all this stuff together? It 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 almost seems like it wouldn't be possible. Yet it it, it happened, and they did a lot of them. And like it's the same type of thing. Like, did aliens come help with watchmaking parts? Like, what's going on? It, when you when you put some of those watches in context to the world that the people who made them lived in, it really is phenomenal. And it really could be that aliens came from another planet to give them a little bit of help. Right. But 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 the reality is that it was done. It was done by hand. It was done, there was machinery, but not in the sense that we have machinery today. And you and couldn't force if, someone to do it, right? Like you couldn't say like, let's go and like force people to do this mundane task. Like you had to love it. It was slow. It was painful. It was frustrating. Like you said earlier, you had to absolutely love it. With those guys at that period, I have absolutely no idea because the world culturally was would have been such a, a very, very different place. The thing that always strikes me, and this even applies to watches which were made really pre-1950s, um, is that it almost seems as though there was more time back in earlier 
um, because so much of what was done, it was done by hand. Even in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, there seemed to be more human time um, that was actually placed into watches of almost like lower value. And it's just like, the days must have been longer or the cost of time must have been much smaller. You want to know my theory? Go for it. Okay, so it has to do with the speed of transportation, okay? The longer transportation takes, the more time you have to fulfill an order, right? So let's say you have to send something on a boat. You're like, okay, we're sending the boat. You're like, you know, you have a lot of time. So what happened back then is that's sort of a simplification, but business happened slower and thus people had more time to fulfill orders. As the speed of transportation and commerce sped up, there was less time to fulfill an order unless you couldn't add those embellishments. And let me, I'll, I'll absorb that. I, I, I don't know. Um, and when I see, when the further that I go back, I find myself, I mean, I, I love horology as a whole. And what I love or what really drives me almost more than like a final product is the process that takes an idea and actually makes it real. You said that a and, bunch of times. Explain what you yeah. mean by that. Well, you and I, yeah, yeah, we, we, we did have this conversation the last time. You and I can sit down, whether it be with a bottle of cognac or a tea and a coffee, and probably within about 15 minutes to an hour, we'll come up with 100 fairly innovative ideas that have never been executed in, in watchmaking. And each one will have a certain validity. Each one can have its own life. Each one could either be a, a product within a brand or it could be a brand in itself. But ideas on their own don't really mean a great deal. But maybe they are a seed, but if you don't have the water, the soil, the sunlight around the seed, it's never going to grow. It's, yeah, it's all develop. about the execution. Yeah, it's all about the execution. So what I love in The Naked Watchmaker and what I love about what I spend the majority of my time doing today is learning about and understanding the processes that are behind all of the watches. And it's, it's the process which takes a dream, uh, an idea, and turns it into something which is real, something which is tangible, something is physical, something which you can hold in your hand. Let me ask you guys, when you first started your own brand, do in sort of yeah. a, a brief series of steps, what was the process to getting the first Piccadilly watch, right? Like this became an iconic timepiece, used the case and variations of it many, many times, but you had to, you had to start from nothing to get the first piece. Name some of the major steps in the process of getting the first Piccadilly. Uh, oh, one of the things is that when I did that, that was a long time, that was 20 years ago, okay? And it was a different world. So what happened then doesn't necessarily apply to the world that we're living in today. Understood. So, okay, so you can't, what, what I was saying now is not, I'll explain, but it isn't necessarily something which can be taken and then used as a... Yeah, but it's an example. You had to go through a process. No, You can't get rich by doing this thing today, everyone. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, and many people try to do it. And every brand, every week or every month, you have new brands. Which and they are knock appearing. on your door, Peter, it didn't work. Why did you say it would make me money? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I changed my career for you because of you. This is like, no, I went you to the mountains. Where do you want me to go? Underground? <laughs> I need some sunlight. I'm not responsible for anybody's choices. But your process <laughs> um, 20 years ago in a parallel okay. universe that so doesn't exist it was, anymore. Listen, it was it was completely organic. Um, I was working at Renault and Pappy, um, Odemar Bigues in La Locla, surrounded by a small workshop of incredible people. And 
um, and Daniela, uh, my, my business partner, who started to, uh, she, she took an MBA. Um, and it was just like, well, we were living together in this old farmhouse. And the, the MBA meant that all of her time was going to be consumed on studying the MBA. And it was like, well, I'm, somehow her motivation to do that then drove me to developing a workshop. Um, no, the workshop I had already started to build, but it pushed me. But you got to the do free work. MBA. I learned a lot, not as much as that, but I did <laughs> learn a lot. So that that space that then suddenly I had because she was doing that then uh, prompted me to start to make my own watch. And many watchmakers they want to make their own watch because they can, but just because you can doesn't mean you actually will. So. I had a workshop because I'd already bought lots of tools because tools for a watchmaker are your guarantee for the future. It doesn't matter uh, where you are. You, you always have them. They and look expensive. That, I'm guessing they're expensive. At the time, no, because all of the stuff that I had had become obsolete because oh. you don't have pointers or jig borrows anymore. You have CNC. I had old uh, Schoblin lathes, um, which cost nothing compared to a lot of modern electronic equipment. But then it was all to be done by hand. And I was from the world of restoration, so it was always done by hand, always done uniquely, always done piece by piece. So I built a pocket watch, which ended up becoming, became known as the foundation watch. And I made that watch purely for me. And the, the, the pretext behind it was that I wanted to have the watch that I wanted that didn't exist. So I love Torbians because of the animation. I wanted to prove to myself that I was both a, I mean, I knew I was already a watchmaker, but a watchmaker is not a constructor. A constructor being somebody who actually can lay out the, the technical foundation for a design, for a mechanism. Um, and I wanted to prove to myself that I could be a designer, somebody who could actually make something which was aesthetically pleasing. So I put the, the watchmaking, the construction, and the design side together, and I made that pocket watch. And it was really just to prove to myself that I could. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't just make a pocket watch like with a tourbillon, like especially, like how does that go about? You had to like do a bunch of drawings first? Do you make the parts yourself? Like... You gloss Renault, over Renault, like the super hard, hard thing. Renault, Renault and Pappy were supporting anybody who wanted to improve their education by paying 50% of any courses that any of the watchmakers or anybody else within the factory wanted to take. That's cool. So I, I ended up uh, learning CAD um, with a Canadian watchmaker um, who was sitting next to me within in, in the workshop. And we both would go every evening or once or twice a week, I think it was, to... Um, to one of the technical schools in uh, in La Locla, and I learned CAD. I learned AutoCAD, and then I mean I got a copy, um, a very an old copy of AutoCAD, and I knew the basis is of what a tourbillon is and how it works. Um, it isn't it isn't in a sense rocket science when you with at that point. I mean I'd already been around for quite a long time, and I understood how how this, the different problems have been resolved by different companies and what the basic theory was behind watchmaking. So to take the ideas in my head and make them into something real was just a question of taking the time and having the, having the CAD and having the, the tools. So it was all there. Then it was just a question of the motivation to make it happen. And then the motivation was, was, was granted because of, of an MBA. You got to pause right here because I think there's an important question. 
it sounds like you wanted your watch to work, like to tell the time accurately, because that's the risk, right? If you don't understand the theory behind it, then if you make a mechanism, even though it looks like it works, it might not be accurate or have any ability to actually do anything other than look fancy, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the question. What is to stop an unscrupulous watchmaker from making something that looks cool and puts it in the market and it's just... It, it, I guess if you wind it up, it moves, but it doesn't actually tell the time. Or does it actually happen all the time? And that's something that people got to like watch out for. I mean, nobody's going to make anything rationally which doesn't work or which they don't think will work because they're never going to get a repeat order. Um, and especially in the day and age that we live today, transparency is so easy and people talk so freely and you can contact so many people. You have to ensure that whatever you make is going to rationally function and, and work. So it only used um, to happen. <laughs> uh, okay, but okay. So what 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 used to happen to, to to a degree was there was a period which is now kind of happily passed, whereby people would have an idea. Uh, this was when a market. I, want, I suppose this is from like two thousand to two thousand and six. The market was growing uh, exponentially. And people were seeing that you can make anything which was fairly innovative, create a story, create a brand, and it would sell. So there were a lot of brands which, for the most part, that don't exist today, that would come up with a concept, and then they would quickly run it through the, the, the design, the prototyping, if there was prototyping, and then straight into manufacture process. But the pieces had never been properly validated. They'd never been properly tested. And then the people who tested the watches were the final consumers who would actually buy the watches. And then there were certain brands, and it's not important who they are, because even the worst culprits are no, either they are no longer there or they're no longer what they were. So it right. doesn't really apply anymore. But there were, there were companies that did this where over 50% or 75% of the product literally came back um, because it wasn't actually working properly. I mean, to put it into context, if you are starting something from a new caliber from, from ground zero, it can easily take uh, three, three to five years to get that piece really working properly if you're making it in any kind of volume. It's actually harder to execute a low, a high quantity, sort of inexpensive product than it is to make a high end complication. Because with a high end complication, you can have a qualified watchmaker who will spend weeks putting it together and the price is still justified. That was the case. Yeah, because it costs it's, like it's, hundreds it, of thousands of dollars. Yeah. I mean, that I say that was the case because we're living in a very different world today and yeah. it's much more, much more aggressive. But I think the, the standard time I heard from one watchmaker manufacturer, a uh, movement manufacturer, is that by the time you've really perfected a new caliber, it can take up to seven years. That doesn't yep. mean the one that comes out after three years isn't good. But by the time they've really perfected every element, it can take seven Especially years. for it not to break very fast. You know, that's one of the things. It's not just accuracy, but wear and tear. And like that, it takes so long to refine those elements. The, the other, um, I mean, the other element, and, and this is the hardest thing. And this is when you visit companies like Edda or Rolex or, or, or Breguet, the, the one of the, the hardest things and the most important things in manufacture is consistency. And that sounds like a really boring thing, but making sure that watch number one, watch number 10, and watch number 1,000 
are all of the same. They're all consistent in manufacturing, finishing, in lubrication, in assembly, in the testing process. That is something, uh, I mean, it's always easy to make the first one, 10, or even 100 watches. But then in, in a sense, in an industrial sense, to make, to guarantee that you have consistency in the future, that is, that is what I think, one of the hardest obstacles companies actually have to overcome. And yet another skill they do not teach you in watchmaking school. But that's not, that's probably the responsibility of the brand manager of the, no, of not course, the brand just, manager, the college. Yeah. But I mean, I, that, 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 that's not a watchmaking, but, but watchmaking schools are about teaching people to become technicians and watchmakers, not industrialists. Well, uh, in, in, in Swiss watchmaking, you have broken down uh, in every company lots of different people who have very specific jobs. Like, are, are you familiar with like the guy who's responsible for methods? Does that the, mean anything to you? The method man? <laughs> the method man. I knew you were going to say that. The method man. The method man is a brilliant occupation. The method man is the guy who analyzes all of the components required to be made in it by a product in a, in a product, and then works out which methods are the most practical to use to execute that component. And his decisions will be governed by what the cost should be of that component, how many of those components are going to be made, what are the tolerances within that component, what kind of materials are required within it. And he, um, and and he or she is literally the most important person in production. He, and she, he or she is incredibly vital. Um, and that person will often have assistants who will actually be scouring around all of the suppliers and the new technologies to find out what else is out there, what is new, but what can be used, what is maybe more efficient, better, what is maybe better for the same price, or what is more, what can be done to the same quality and the same quantity, but for, for, for less cost, so to speak, as well. So in, in an industry as big as, as watchmaking, you have like multiple like method, method men and method women who can then uh, help the companies to actually work out what is the most effective way to make these pieces. And that, that's not a watchmaker. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question. To do business in today's world, to do business, I mean like a watch brand, you know, a brand that has a, has a brand name and, and makes watches and needs distribution. To get a global audience interested in your product, you have to advertise, you have to market, and you have to do so in a relatively substantial and ongoing way. Um, it's doable. Companies do it all the time, but, you know, it's a hard thing to do. Why is it that the Swiss brands, especially the ones that have the big financial backing, every single time fail to invest properly? Like, you know it, I know it, collectors know it, their own employees know it. What is the systemic problem to properly investing? There's, you know, they admire, you know, these, these business journals and there's no, there's no case of the American company not investing properly. I mean, that's the, 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 the trick in America. Like, how does your business get ahead? We spend a lot on everything. Like, in Switzerland, it's like they, that news is somehow antithetical the way they want to do business. Explain to me why these brands never reach their full potential. Ariel, you've just gone way outside of my comfort zone and in, into a domain that oh. I, I, I don't understand. Uh, you can ask me questions about grand sonneries, minute repeaters, development, movements, um, even down to <laughs> positioning of, of, of a product. When it comes into the thought process of why companies do or do not market, um, I, I I don't know. And I mean, and it varies. You have a company like Rolex that have established themselves by 
paying uh, on spending, I think, 80% more than the next biggest marketeer in, in, in watchmaking. Uh, and they are beyond being a watch company. They're, they're an institution. They're, they, a global they are, sign of success. They're absolutely extraordinary. I mean, one of the things perhaps is that watchmaking is a tiny, tiny niche organization. Um, it really is small. If you look at the figures from the 1950s and 1960s and you compare them to what they were last year, and then you take into you take into consideration the sort of the the change in value of of the dollar and inflation and all those elements, it's kind of like doubled in size. It's not quadrupled. It's not ten times the big as it, you would see in the medical industry or the IT industry. Um, it's it's really hasn't changed a, a great deal. Um, it still remains a, a very small, a very small industry. Even though we are talking about pretty large sums of, of, of money, um, and perhaps to be able to take it onto the level that you have in other industries, whether it's the car industry uh, or the medical industry, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps that you need to spend a disproportionate amount of money to make those advances, and the business perhaps cannot withstand it. It can't, it can't absorb those kind of investments. You know what I've always thought? I've always thought that the best type of ownership for a watch brand was someone that needed the watch brand to be like a vanity part of their like business portfolio. Like it's a loss leader. They dump money into it when they want to like, you know, offset, you know, gains. Um, you know, they, they, ha they funnel monies through parties. Hell, make the thing a nonprofit, give to charity. Like it's just like a, like a slush fund for money that would otherwise be taxed. An ego job, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, possibly, possibly. But I mean, I like to think that what we do in the business is not actually, I mean, clearly the elements of significance, the elements of ego association, uh, they associate with anything which is associated to, to, to luxury. But I am kind of idealistic and perhaps a little bit naive, which I like to be. And the thing about watchmaking, what it was, what it is, and what I think it always will be, is that it is about culture. And that word culture is what differentiates a human being from a machine or an animal. It's something which brings uh, an emotion into people's lives. And, and only rich people can afford culture, and rich people like to show their culture off on their wrist. So the beautiful thing you make has to be housed in a... Uh, a little container that has a whole other life to it. Listen, whether or not it's somebody who's extremely uh, wealthy um, or somebody who can afford uh, a relatively inexpensive mechanical timepiece, um, it's kind of the same thing. It doesn't necessarily come down to somebody's wealth because you do not need to wear a mechanical watch today. You do not actually need to wear a watch. Not from How dare a, you? A, How dare you, trader? How dare <laughs> no, not, you? Not, not, hang on, hang on. Hear, hear me out. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me explain that, okay? Um, everybody's, everybody, virtually everybody in, sort of a, in the developed world is carrying around a smartwatch. We have time all around us. I've got in front of me two computers, or one computer, two screens open, and I'm, I have time uh, everywhere. Um, so the need or the must, the, the absolute must-have for, um, for a mechanical wristwatch or any wristwatch is not really there. But there is a heart, a soul, 
there is something living, there is something perpetual uh, about mechanical watches. There's something which actually goes beyond uh, smartwatches, beyond most of the technology, because with all of the products that are made, and it can be, let's say, a Tissot for, I don't know, 1500 bucks with a mechanical ETA caliber inside of it, or it can be um, a Ferdinand Burr II, which is, I don't know, 200,000 or 150,000 okay, bucks. Let me, let me translate. It's luxury, but with good taste, meaning it's not superficial. I agree with you. And it's not necessarily about, I mean, it's always about money, but it doesn't it's just necessarily have to be no, about no, the, big money. It's not about money, but look, let's go to the tourbillon. If you want someone like you, Peter, to build a tourbillon, just the sheer number of hours it would take, even at a rock bottom price, would be high. Even Imagine the handmade stuff, you know, like Roger Smith or something like that. He puts together a watch, even if he's not trying to like make total, total bank on it, it takes him a long time to do that. You could, you probably have the skills to do that. You'd have to charge a certain amount that just by definition of the number of hours put into it would be way out of the range of affordability for most pe people. Not because you're trying to like gouge them, but because you just put it like months of your time into this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, but what I'm saying is that it you don't have to... To 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 in no, I would say invest because that's another subject altogether. But to be able to 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 purchase something which actually has what I call soul or a certain culture to it, that doesn't have to have to be. Uh, you don't have to take out a second mortgage on your house to to, to do but that. But you do if you want to have a tourbillon. Uh, depends on who makes it because they've come down radically. I, in, but in again, price that tr well. that traditional. One human being like you, if you had to do it yourself, because that's where the romance is, like the ultimate romance. Like for me, if I could ever afford it, I want you or someone like you to be like, you just make something from scratch for me. I just want to know that every goddamn piece was made by you for me. And it's all in here. I want your blood, your sweat, your tears, years of your life, all on my wrist. That's what I want. Start now. <laughs> Okay, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the invoice. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> but it's you not about it. money, Peter. It's not about uh, money. Listen, when it, it, it that is an entirely different world. I mean, and then if you want to look into sort of the independent watchmaker world, you kind of need to go back to, to understand that, and for your listeners to understand that, you kind of need to know where it comes from. And the, there's an evolution, and most of this evolution in uh, in watchmaking that you see today began in the 70s and the 80s, and it was caused, or the 80s and the 90s, and it was caused by the crisis from the the invention of quartz and the and cheap, highly accurate electronic watches. Then you have the the downfall of the big guys, who then slowly then came back. And then through modern technology of the, the, the World Wide Web, digital photography, forums, then suddenly you, you enter the, a world of independent watchmakers where somebody who does not have the resources of a big company can both make and have the visibility to be able to show what they do to the outside world. And then you go to another level today where you go, you, you don't transcend, you just change and you have independent watchmakers and then you have micro brands. Because anybody today who has a certain motivation and a certain amount of money can produce a brand. Then if you take a step back and you go to the independent watchmakers, the difference between them and the big brands and the micro brands is that what you buy with independent watchmakers tends to be, for the most part, their time, their sweat, um, their life, their blood that actually goes into them. And at that point, automatically, you're, everybody has costs in their life. 
um, and they will end up being materializing, manifesting into uh, large sums of, of money for the individual pieces that are made. And that's how a watch gets sold. It's not that a watch without soul is bad, but a watch that like has somebody's entire day and week and one person in there, um, for whatever reason, just seems to have more, it's more lifelike, right? Like one thing feels like an industrially made thing and it can be beautiful and amazing, but it doesn't feel like a different kind of life form. And there's something very special and, and valuable about that, that if you can afford it, is a nice thing to have on your person. It, it, it is, or it can be, it can be. But it's, watches are forms of art, and art is appreciated and liked by different people. So I think one of the wonderful things about, it, about watchmaking, and it also applies to the, the bigger guys as well, is that you can't have something which appeals to everybody, but you have some things which people will either say they are in love with it, and other people will look at the same thing, and they'll say... It's absolutely dog ugly. Um, it, it's terrible. <laughs> How would you ever pay any kind of money for that? And that's human. It's not like just having a, having a service which delivers um, a certain a certain value. This is completely subjective. It's completely human. This is an important question. I am a fan of a lot of these watches from this era. Not necessarily the ones that didn't work, but. I don't want to call them modern vintage, a silly name, but like just, you know, more modern timepieces are no longer made. You know, we have a series on a blog to watch, no longer made. We try to write about these watches from time to time. And there's great stuff out there you can get on eBay for a pretty good deal from like, you know, 2000 to 2010. What should people stay away from? Are there certain types of complications? Because the risk is getting something that just isn't going to work. No watchmaker can make it work. The stuff is out there. Like just give some telltale signs of certain types of things to avoid because... Um, it's just not going to make you happy, even if it's a beautiful watch and you're going to get a great deal. Oh boy, that's that's that 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 is a real minefield, and it's 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 a minefield which will be full of contradictions as well, because since since the beginning of watchmaking time, brands companies have bought generic calibers and then they repackage them. Okay, this goes back even to the time of Tompion, who was a watchmaker going back, I think, to the 17th century. Not oh, sure. Oh, yeah, when. this is like this is an original concept almost. Okay, I mean, it was there has always been. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the companies have always, um, from really from the dawn of time, used other used their generic calibers to a de- to a degree and personalized them to produce their own brands to produce their own projects. Patek Philippe used to do it um, back in the the end of the 19th century. It's not a criticism, it's just the way that it was done and they would yeah. take the things and they were Okay, them, so and, 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 so, and what, so what does this mean about the watch of 2000, 2010? So what, what, it, what it means is that during that period of time you would have you would have commonalities to what happened at the beginning and what always happens or still happens to, 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 to today, which means that there are certain products out there which will have calibers inside of them which you can still get components for you can still repair which were probably actually really well tested beforehand and there's no real big issue about buying them even if the brand doesn't exist because you're always going to be able to get them fixed right however one one there are certain exceptions there the calibers you probably can get fixed, but if a dial needs replacing or changing because it's scratched or it's damaged or it's corroded, you're going to suddenly enter into the world of restoration where something has to be made a one-off, unique, 
tore that piece, so suddenly the price may explode. I.e., you don't want to go there. You possibly don't possibly don't want to go there. You may have seals within the case, like the silicone or the rubber seals that that, that were used, which are no longer available. So you're not going to be able to ensure that the watch is actually water resistant. Oh, I have that. I have a, like a crazy dive watch that I took in the pool and it fogged up, and no one can fix it. Anything which is, if you can, you said at the beginning, you don't want to call it vintage, but you can call it vintage. So there are a lot of those early brands or those products that were made that are no longer supported by any form of after-sales service. If you can maybe treat them as uh, as a vintage timepiece and you accord them the same kind of respect, you're probably going in the right direction. However, <laughs> however, Meaning you're going to spend money. You're gonna, yeah, because you're you're you you go back to this wonderful reality of your you're not buying a component, you're buying time, and time is more expensive than a single component. There was a, a somebody came to me recently with a, a brand that won't be named, but disappeared uh, at some point, and I couldn't even really re- I I could refer them to people to 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 repair them. But the problem is that one of the components within the watch was made using uh, UV Liga uh, technology. And the only way that particular component could be remanufactured <laughs> is the was same way. way. Is the same way because it just simply couldn't be made. <laughs> it's too precise. It's and the thing is, precise. the moment that you go into that, whether you make one component or possibly a thousand, it's going to cost you the same amount of money. I mean, money. the machine's like over a million dollars, right? It's it's well it's, ex- it's 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 big it's it's big and, and the the as a, as a as a technique I mean it's absolutely brilliant um, it opens up a, a lot of different doors for for creativity and execution as well as speed of production and and quality and precision of manufacture uh, but when it comes to somebody who may have used that fifteen years ago, so, oh, so how um, would somebody know if there's a league of parts in their watch? That's you know, help it's, them. Help. It's I mean, and, and listen, and it doesn't. And the other, the other, uh, the expression, the caveat is that it doesn't necessarily apply to everything. You would almost have to have, and I'm I'm not the person to do this because I already don't have enough hours in a day. But you, if you have a desire to buy a watch from a brand that no longer exists, you need to go to a specialist who can give it a once over, have a look at the reason why it's working or not working, and be able to make a sort of an analytical decision as to whether or not this is a practical purchase to to actually make. Uh, and part of that decision process will be, what is the value of it? Is it worth nothing and it's just a pleasure purchase or is it a brand that doesn't exist but is actually has made perhaps some kind of uh, investment value for, for the future or intrinsically it's made of stardust, platinum and has got 50 carats of diamonds smothered all over it. Um, so it's, you're not sounding very encouraging for people to buy watches. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But we're talking about obsolete. We're not talking about watches. Watches at all. We're talking about obsolete product, rather obsolete product from obsolete brands. Okay, that isn't about modern. We're not talking about independence or mainstream. We're talking about product which doesn't, uh, which is no longer Again, supported anymore. Someone's going to listen to this and be like, get all all jazzed about tourbillons and watches from two thousand to two thousand five or six, and they're going to go on eBay. And they're not going to know what you know. So you have to give them like, I'm not saying you mentioned a brand, but like if you see that complication, you should worry. Listen, I would I would do it another way. Okay. And I would simply say that there's a lot of companies that were born between that period that are dead. And then you've uh, got a lot of companies that were born during that period and they're still alive. 
look at the ones that are still alive because they're the ones that... So if you are in an evolutionary dead end, there's probably a good reason. Is that what you're trying to say? If you are, I don't Explain that. If you are an evolutionary dead end, you tried something new, it didn't work, and you died as a result, you should not resurrect that DNA. You should not purchase that product. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't resurrect that DNA. What I mean is don't buy their watch. It won't work, and you won't be able to fix it. Listen, it... it, it there's always an issue with everything. If you if everything which is mechanical, everything which is mechanical, at some point in time needs to be serviced. It needs to be cleaned. Um, <laughs> if it's perpetual calendar for 2004, just skip it. It depends <laughs> on who made it. I mean, there are so, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm sitting on the fence on this one, but there are so many, there are so many arguments that can go in both directions. The most important or one of the most important elements in, in watchmaking is not the not simply the product that is made, but the after-sales service that accompanies it. If you buy a product from a brand that no longer exists, the likelihood is that it's going to cost you a fortune to actually repair if it can be repaired at all. At all. Every mechanical product, um, virtually every mechanical product that is made at some point or another will require servicing or some kind of uh, some kind of treatment. On a mechanical watch, that can be from the mechanism through to the case, the seals, the screws. Um, but something which is fundamental to the functioning of that of that product. So, if you buy a product which is from a brand which no longer exists, you automatically place yourself in a position where it may become very expensive or very complicated to assure its future functioning and its servicing, its, us its usability. So if you want to buy a vintage product, a vintage collector's um, independent brand watch from that period, the best general sort of blanket uh, approach would be make sure that they're still around today. And then you know that those people who designed and made it in the first place will be able to give you the service uh, required to ensure the, the longevity of the piece into the future. Okay, I guess that's pretty good advice. I mean, look, when it comes down to it, there's so many watches out there, there's no way that you could really remark on the whole thing. I think what's important is that even modern watches can be dangerous. And likewise, I laugh at the people that so readily get vintage watches not having any idea what's involved in making them actually work. I think that most vintage watches just end up being throwaways. Does it surprise you sometimes to see some of the values that these speculators are affording vintage watches at these auctions? I mean, these aren't really indicative of their value. It's sort of a subset of people that are just like bored rich people. But like, does it kind of amuse you what these go for knowing how basic these things are? Um, no, no, because I, I kind of cut my teeth on, on those pieces and they're, they're kind of different. They're different from the, uh, the, the sector that we were just talking about, like redundant, uh, independent brands from the, from 2000, 2006, because the, those, the early vintage pieces, they were like antique pocket watches. They were made in a different period. They have a different feeling. They have, in a sense, uh, a greater sense of rarity. Um, and they have it. I mean, I love them. They're, there's a certain charm uh, about them. Okay, well, what are we talking about? Though? What watches are you talking about? If you look, I'll give you an example. Okay, it's the best example in the world. It's Rolex. 
Okay. If you look at early Rolex, now I'm not talking about Submariners, but you look at really the early pieces that Wilsdorf and Davis used to make um, when they when they first started up the company. One of the guys, I think, was a case maker. The other one was a bracelet maker. They weren't really watchmakers. But they developed uh, wristwatches and pocket watches, which were the very first of their kind, as did all of the other brands, because wristwatches did not exist prior, pretty much prior to 1910, 1900. So when you have, whether it's a Vacheron, a Patek, an Omega, a Tissot, or whatever these companies, a Zsia, um, who were producing their own designs, those designs had never been done before. They were the first of their kind. Um, and Rolex, I have a, a great sort of respect for, because when you look back at the beginning of Rolex, you have curved watches. You have you have almost like Panerai style cushion cases. You have octagonal pieces. Yeah, all you kinds have pocket of stuff. watches, and and they're absolutely bloody wonderful. They're 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 incredible. Um, and there's only a real limit of pieces, uh, limited number of those pieces which are out there, and they are indicative of the birth of wristwatch making. Um, and I love them because they are pure. I mean, for the most part, there is real originality there because nothing existed okay, before. I agree with you. I guess maybe I should have been more specific because I'm talking about like some. I mean, like the Paul Newman Daytona is a perfect example. It's fine, but like, you know, some of those like seventies era um, Rolexes and things like that, like they're they're cool, but like half a million dollar cool. Like someone's got to be laughing their ass off. No, but the, you're you're not buying a watch. You're not buying well, a watch. I like buying I mean, watches, and you like yeah, making but, watches. Yeah, but you're not when 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 you buy the Paul Newman or when you buy uh, a unique Patek made in steel, which had never been made before in the 1950s, or something which was worn by Andy Warhol. Uh, it, you know, it's you you're, you're no longer you're no longer buying a watch. You're buying a story. You're buying a piece of history. Um, it's but don't you being kind is, of like a cult, like a culture vampire? Like it's not really your history, so why are you trying to buy it? No, no, no. That that's come on. You're, you're the last person in the world to be naive, and that's a naive statement. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, look, I'm playing the devil's advocate a little bit. Because yeah. Okay. Okay. But 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 no. No, no, no. Okay. When a, when a watch goes um, for that crazy, those crazy kinds of uh, of money, it really enters. It enters into a different world. And I I love it because in a sense it's just like it it it's cultural it's human it brings to light things which otherwise people wouldn't have uh, thought you know about becomes, or spoken about. I call it a relic. It becomes a relic. A relic sounds dead. Um, well, I'd say it becomes. It become, <laughs> how about legend? Can we can we have we change it to like a a myth or 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 a legend? It's well, kind of more positive. The idea is it's it's an object. That the value is in the symbolism. Yeah, it's the story. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's symbolic of a person, of a time, of a feeling, of an achievement. That object itself doesn't have those things, but we associate a pretty damn powerful story with this thing, and something about owning that story. Because that's an interesting thing, right? Like some of these products, they can exist in the world. I'll be the first to admit some of the stories are romantic and amazing, but the idea that I have to own the object. That's very, it's very strange, right? Like I can appreciate the, the the sort of Paul Newman Daytona story of the watch, but does that mean I have to own one? It wasn't like I'd wear it. They're too fragile anyways, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but can you can you i don't know i don't know i mean imagine if you could i mean it, it's uh i'm, well, I'm, I'm a not human a collector. being of course i'd be like yes it's all mine i want all the value for me yeah i mean i th- I, I think it's great i think i think it's actually incredibly uh, it's also incredibly romantic um i mean and romance is not a, an, an objective emotion um, opinion it is it is something else it's something which again comes back to being very very human um but no, I, I I love it. So let's talk romance for a second, because I think this is sort of a funny thing. And this gets to sort of an extreme, but like DeVitt, there was those watches that had Napoleon's hair in it. And again, De, you know, <laughs> Jerome DeVitt himself is a distant relative of Napoleon. So yes, yes yeah. it was kind of thing. But like nothing about the fact that there's a watch with Napoleon's hair in it surprises you or me at all. Right, we're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But to everyone else, they're like, what? What the heck? Listen, but that that is about, but that that is that was that whole um, that whole line of thought or that whole marketing approach that was conceived by Roman Jerome. Um, I think they were probably the first company in a okay. sense with like the Titanic actually, DNA. Exactly. I mean, and then in a sense, it, you could say that it already existed beforehand historically when you have reggae watches which were owned by Napoleon or, or whoever. Um, and he's on their and, ads. He's an ambassador. Can you imagine back then? He's like, I'm winning these wars and I'm being represented by Breguet. This is amazing. <laughs> it's with, with the Titanic watches you had, <clears throat> or as one person I know used to call them like coffin watches, um, I have one. I have one of those half watches. <laughs> it's 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 uh it's it's part of of history. It's part of it became part of watchmaking history, not Titanic history, but watchmaking history, because it was another way to be able to develop a story to sell a, a product, and <clears throat> a bunch of other companies tried to do the same thing um, using different unique elements. I don't think anybody... What's the worst one that comes to mind? Dinosaur shit. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the same guy. It was the same guy. But brilliant. Can you, I mean, I can imagine somebody saying, hey, my, my, my watch has DNA. That's has copper elements lights. From Titanic. That's called copper lights. Copper lights sounds a lot fancier. Oh, but man, dinosaur poo. I mean, I thought that was absolutely wonderful. But, okay, can, but it, the it, same guy did the best of the worst. I love that. <laughs> it's the same company. I don't know if it was the same person. Yes, it was he did that as well. God, yes. I mean, come on. And the guy's going strong today. I mean, you've got to take off your hat to him. For, for, oh, for yeah. That. You know why? Karate. Yes, black belt, indeed. If you don't channel yeah, your yeah, inner Jean-Claude Van Damme, you're not going to age gracefully. You know that. Damn, I knew there was something missing from my education. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm going to go out and get... That's it. Okay, okay. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to leave MMA here and I'm going to find a course. <laughs> Sorry, it's called what? They call it MMA. It's, it's, it's Mixed Martial Arts. Mixed martial arts. Okay. That's what they do these days. So it's basically like, um, it's not any one, but it's a combination of like Muay Thai and kickboxing and regular boxing. It's You can kick, you can grapple a little bit, you can wrestle, or you, blood is encouraged, you know. <laughs> it sounds perfect. It it's sounds brutal. Perfect. It's, I, look, I see, it's, if you ever watch this on, on TV, like uh, UFC, the ultimate fighting champion, that's what it is. That It's MMA and it's, it's I, I can't even watch it. It's too violent for my eyes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm going to see You're if like, I can find something. You're like, I'm going to sit here and polish some bridges a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. So Extremes. Yes. Last question, and then I will let you get on with your day. Um, what keeps you fundamentally 
enthralled with this, right? Because you and I have both seen the industry go up, go down, go sideways, go upside down. And we've dealt with a lot of personalities that we probably would have preferred to not be in our life, right? Yet something about the core appreciation for timepieces keeps us coming back. What is it for you that keeps you coming back to watch this time and time again? Um, I mean, we, we do, you and I, we're part of the same universe, but we still sort of live in, on different planets within that universe. And the commercial side, which you're closer to, I don't have anything to do with anymore. And I'm It was good riddance, right? You were like, you uh, wanted to wipe your hands of it real fast. Um, it's just, we're good. Everybody's good at different things. And, <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm kind of, and, and the, even before COVID, you have the change in generations, um, that the whole business is changing. It changes all of the time. And at one point in my life, I was spending more time selling watches and traveling around the world than I was actually being a watchmaker. I remember that. And, and you and all your colleagues, none of you guys knew yeah, how you were actually yeah, getting yeah. any work done. Yeah, no. And it's just like, at the end of the day, you know, you do it once or twice. That's kind of fun. That's interesting. Then you find yourself spending like 50% of your time doing it. And then it's just like, hang on, I've done it before. I've been here again. Where is the end of it? So I, I stopped that. And what I do today actually continues that love of learning that I had as that nine-year-old kid that used to go to the science museum in London by the underground. And uh, briefly, you know, if if I give you an idea of what I've done over the last month, um, you, the watches you'll, you'll you've taken apart, you mean? The companies that I've visited, the 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 incredible um, amiability and openness of people in this business, which has a history of being very private and secretive, they let an English watchmaker, um, a foreigner, into their companies to dismantle and photograph their products and then share them with the world. That has never been done before. And recently, I've done that with um, new products to be coming out next year with Dupont Dupin. Um, as one of, Dupont Dupin is a company that makes normally modules for very big companies, but they're developing other things. Uh, today, oh, they got the first movement coming? Which is absolutely beautiful. I mean, right. in so, so in, on so many different levels. The week prior to that, I was in a collection where I was dismantling some of the very early Ferdinand Bertou pocket watches. Yeah, I saw um, that. I love that stuff. And and it was like, again, it's like the, the, the Breguet um, ruby cylinder thing. It was just like, they did that 200 years ago? And the, the piece is absolutely phenomenal. It, it's, it's, it's just so extraordinary. Did, did Chopard hook you up with that? Like, how do you get yeah. it? You know? Okay. No, yeah. I, 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 basically, I interviewed uh, for the random blog of time on the Naked Watchmaker, Carl Frederick uh, Schufler. And um, he's, he's, I mean, he's an incredible guy, a lovely guy. Um, and the, uh, the interview led to a discussion on our mutual sort of love of watchmaking. And he has examples of early Ferdinand too. So um, I look at this stuff and it's just like, I'd love to get my hands on that. And he basically said, go ahead. So I started with a couple of the pieces. And so I'm, I'm going from high-end, rather uh, brand new modern movements and then suddenly plunging into the world of antiquity with a product that was made over 200 years ago. And then in between that... How do you, like, what do you touch it with? Like you can't mess it up. 
Like, what do you? How no, do you- no, but I, I think well with with that one. I mean, I yeah, I physically have it. I with that particular one, uh, we did like a partial, uh, did not a full deconstruction, but a partial deconstruction. But that was really down to time and the lack of it. Um, but I mean, I'm that. This is what I do. This is. I mean, I'm qualified as a watchmaker from antiquity all the way up to modern complications. And that is one of the reasons why all of these companies feel comfortable with me going into them and actually taking them apart. So that learning pro the, the learning process of how things were done and how things are done and the innovative nature of how companies are developing new products today, I don't get bored. Uh, I love I love what I do. And I have the luxury of not having to to worry about the commercial side of it, which I in this in the day and age that we're living in today, I, I don't I don't understand because to understand it, I think you need to be in the market. You need to speak to the people, the retailers, the distributors, the clients, people like Ariel Adams, the people who actually have a direct contact with the end consumer. Um, I don't have that contact, and to a degree, I don't have time for that contact. I, I enjoy it. It's interesting, but my love, my drive, the passion for what I do, the development of the naked watchmaker, comes from the, the, the partly through the sheer diversity of companies and uh, and products and techniques as well that I encounter. Um, it, it's 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 extraordinary, and I can I've always I've I've always had a hunger to learn. And I don't think, I mean, Somlo Antiques in London, six years, it was an incredible education and it, and it influenced the rest of my life uh, from a design point of view and also for a love of watchmaking as well. And what I do today is a little bit like all the doors, many, not all, many doors are open to me. And then I can take my love and then I can actually share it with other people outside at the most pertinent moment in history when people want to know what it is that they're actually buying. Is there an intrinsic value behind the, the dollar that they're actually spending on, on, on each watch? And you, you did it from a watchmaker perspective and that's the exact same reason which I started a blog to watch back in 2007. So I feel you. And like yeah. you, I would, I would probably quickly jump out of this industry the moment I realize I stop learning something. As long as it keeps giving me something to satisfy the curiosity, you and I have different curiosities, but we're curious, as long as there's something yeah. for us, we'll stay. The moment we've we figured out that we've learned as much as we want to, we'll go on to something else. Hey, and the beautiful thing is that you'll never finish, you'll never finish the learning curve. Okay. I even there was a there was a moment in time, I think it may have started to become a little bit redundant. There was a little bit of, uh, rep, I mean, there was a lot of repetition because companies have to be very safe with what they do. Now, in this new world, people actually have to be incredibly creative and they have to be genuinely original because otherwise people will see straight through them because knowledge is so, uh, is, is prevalent everywhere. You, 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 you can find out. There's a lot of misinformation as well, um, but you can find out stuff. So this is actually forcing companies um, in a very pragmatic way to actually be highly, uh, highly original. And I get to see a lot of that stuff. So 
I love the antique stuff, but I find myself being more, not more and more enthralled, but becoming ever, uh, forever curious about what comes next. And there is interesting stuff coming out. Uh, and it, it does have legs. It will walk into the future. Thank how many you. of those things, how many of those things will genuinely be successful? I have no idea. Nobody does. As long as they're trying new things, we're happy, right? They are. They are. And, and, and it's there. And I kind of, uh, I kind of feel that mine and Daniela's place with the naked watchmaker is kind of like I was to be overly romantic about it. It's not destiny, but it's like it's just the perfect time for this thing to exist, this site to exist, to be able to, to to share with people what comes next. I mean, we also share what has been historically as well. But there's a lot of extraordinary stuff. There's a lot of extraordinary people in this business. And all of the changes that are taking place is causing people to think more, how to be more creative, how to become more innovative uh, on every level, from, from movements to mechanisms to cases to designs, all the way through to the final commercial element uh, of how to make these businesses work. But it is actually an extraordinary time. It will always be there, watchmaking, uh, and it will always rebound, it will always adjust, and we're in a period of, of huge adjustment. So it is actually, not many people look at it this way, but it is actually a very a exciting point. moment. It's a good point. It is a good moment, yeah. There's a lot of cleaning that will take place. <laughs> there will be a lot of yeah. culling, a big cull. Cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. I, I know, I said culling, okay. you said cleaning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the man yes. is Peter Speak. Uh, you can find his work on thenakedwatchmaker.com. I believe that for the purposes of the interview, he did put pants on, so thank you. Um, yes, it's okay. And, I wouldn't put you through that, Ariel. <laughs> and the next time we're going to talk more about some of the individual movements that you've taken apart. Until then, Peter, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you for listening to Superlative. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?